wire theory friends and welcome to another episode of fully automated an occupy ir theory podcast This week, we are starting a short series of podcasts on the place of Marxism in international relations. Next episode, we're going to be joined by Sebastian Sklovsky and Kevin Funk, who are going to be discussing a piece they have in the latest issue of International Studies Perspectives, entitled The Spectre That Haunts Political Science, The Neglect and Misreading of Marx in International Relations and Comparative Politics. So... Do be on the lookout for that episode coming in about a week's time. It's a great interview. I'm really looking forward to posting it for you. This episode, we are joined by Brian Skoulis, an adjunct professor at Florida International University, who will be discussing uh, a 2015 piece that he co-authored with Sean Walsh of Capital University entitled Marx in Miami, Reflections on Teaching and the Confrontation with Ideology uh, that appeared in the journal Class, Race and Corporate Power. In the interview that you're going to hear, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the particular challenges of teaching Marxism in a city like Miami, which, obviously enough, has a very high population of Cuban immigrants. So you're going to hear Brian discussing uh, some of the unique mental obstacles he encounters in the classroom and some of the pedagogical approaches that he and his co-author have developed as they seek to overcome them. Marx, of course, was one of the great thinkers of uh, the historical situatedness of human consciousness. And regardless of your take uh, on his wider political program, the value of his approach to questions of human nature and political power cannot easily be gainsaid. Uh, Towards the end of the interview, we'll also be asking Bryant about a recent run-in he's had with the American far right, or at least online and in the media, Uh, insofar as they've picked up uh, on a a more recent piece of his, uh, which is on the Disney movie Beauty and the Beast, which Bryant argues is exemplary of toxic capitalist masculinity. So we're going to be asking him uh, why he refused to go on television and defend this piece uh, on a right-wing talk show. So uh, without any further ado, here's Bryant Skoulis. Well, thanks for joining us, Brian. Uh, let me start by saying I really appreciate the chance to talk uh, Marxist pedagogy uh, with someone who's given so much thought to this question. And look, fair to say, it's not easy to teach Marxism anywhere in the United States of America, but you've chosen a particularly <laughs> a challenging site to engage in this activity, and that is Miami, Florida, uh, a city incredibly close to Cuba and a city that is quite heavily populated with Cuban refugees, Cuban immigrants, the descendants of people who have fled from a Marxist revolution. So, I don't know, just to get us started today, set the scene for us, will you? Just tell the listeners a little bit about some of the specific challenges that you and your co-author Sean Walsh have encountered uh, while teaching Marxism in Miami. Uh, this is not if I'm right, the sort of place you're going to have too many of those fluffy experiences, right? You know, the ones the oh my God, these are the moments. I am so glad I decided to become an academic. Um, You in this piece even go so far as to say there are moments in the classroom where you genuinely feel that your students actually hate you. So tell us about it. What's, What's going on for you down in Miami? And how did you come to want to write this piece? It was something that that came through my experience as a TA with with my co-author for for the piece. 
um, Sean Walsh, who's now at Capital University in Ohio. And, and through those initial experiences as, as his TA and then teaching classes on my own over, over the next several years, you realize very quickly that how students react when you get to Marx or Marxism in, in mainly political theory classes, which is what I teach, that they just react very differently than they would, you know, when we cover Locke or liberalism or Burke and conservatism or even anarchism or feminism. Um, although those those two ideologies and traditions come with different presuppositions and assumptions and ideological baggage. But with Marxism in particular in Miami, where a lot of our students at Florida International University are either themselves uh, Cuban exiles or their parents are or their grandparents are, kind of all the different generational layers of that uh, expat community, in addition to students from Nicaragua and, and even more so Venezuela, obviously. And, and a lot of those students actually are much more recent immigrants. Very, it's not extremely uncommon, but very rarely do we have students who actually lived a substantial portion of their life in Cuba. The Venezuelan students are a little bit different. So they look at Marxism and I'm not exaggerating. You might as well be asking them to take Hitler seriously as a, as a political thinker. I mean, these Karl Marx and Hitler are in their head kind of very similar. So even, I mean, I've had students talk to me about how uncomfortable, and these are students who want to take the text seriously, but they feel literally uncomfortable even bringing the Marx Engels reader into their parents' home, that they feel like they're betraying their parents' experience, their parents' trust, their, I mean, I, I've had students tell me that they're worried that their parents are going to kick them out if, you know, they find that book, um, which is ironic given their position, like, you know, all the things they hate about Castro, censorship and all that stuff, right? They they don't want their, their children even reading Marx. Um, so there's that kind of emotional identity baggage that students bring into the classroom. And so there's a particular onus just in a, in a very mainstream pedagogical sense, in, in a way that regardless of the, the teacher's politics, there, there's a pedagogical demand that you implement certain strategies to just simply get the students to take Marxism and Marx's writings seriously as just a, a political thinker that they need to know about in the context of a college classroom. But obviously, given my own politics as a Marxist and, and a who's active in, in socialist politics in the United States, it's kind of a, a double a double layer to it because I have an interest that they take it seriously. Great. So um, maybe next, let's just talk about the piece. OK, so you have these descriptions of encounters, difficult encounters, difficult conversations uh, with your students when it comes to the topic of Marxism. Most of your students are anti-Marxist, but for all that, it seems that their anti-Marxism is maybe more instinctive or habitual uh, than intellectual per se. And you and your co-author, Sean, identify mm, three, I think, basic ideal types of opposition that you encounter in the classroom. So maybe you could just flesh these out for us a bit. 
Yeah. So, and I, I think, again, my co-author, uh, Sean Walsh, deserves a lot of credit for figuring out a way to kind of categorize these different iterations of opposition that are that our students uh, bring bring to us when we start talking about Marx and Marxism. And so the three general categories are first, this kind of historical association between Karl Marx's writings and the various kind of actually existing socialism, if you want to call it that, um, like the Soviet Union, you know, Mao's China, Castro in Cuba, um, Vietnam, North Korea, and, and Chavez in Venezuela. So trying to dislocate that, that association and, and get students to kind of put that aside, at least for the beginning. And then, you know, it always comes back and we look at like, okay, so I got you to put that aside just to look at the text seriously to start with. And then we kind of do an actual comparison between, you know, what are, why is it that you kind of have this, I mean, not just this, the students, but our society in general has such disdain for these societies. And then we can credit to like, what did Marx actually write? Um, so that's the, the first category. The, the next category has to deal with particular conceptions of human nature, right? So students will basically say some version of, well, isn't Marxism just incompatible with human nature? Um, and that that's, a I think, a more obviously ideological kind of assumption or opposition that the students are bringing in that is not necessarily particular to uh, Cuban immigrants or Venezuelan immigrants. That that's, I, I think, even the more progressive liberal students bring, bring this question up as well. Um, they're assumptions that capitalism is human nature and then you have this third category too right yes yeah the third is and again these these categories are not meant to be totally distinct from one another there's obviously some overlap but the third category is this this trope that marxism looks great on paper or in theory but in practice it just can't work so that's where this kind of an overlap is because like one of the versions of that third category is well it looks great in human, uh, on paper if human nature was compatible with that thing, that kind of theory or, or approach to political economy, but it's not. But there are other versions that are that are much more abstract, that they can't even put themselves in the kind of political imagination to see to to think about society differently. Right? And people like Zizek and Frederick Jameson, especially, have have talked about this. Right? The, this. It, it's become a cliche on the left to, at least left academics, to talk about how much of it, talk about uh, how much of a cliche it is to say that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. So let me see if I got this right. If the first aspect, uh, the first category that you're dealing with is the, is that of Cuba and the proximity to Cuba, the history and legacy, the memory of of, of the Cuban Revolution. Uh, the second one is more to do with human nature and the sort of logical role that the concept of human nature plays in thinking about Marxism for your students. Then thirdly, this is really just this kind of more kind of cultural question of habituation and, uh, uh, dare I say, indoctrination. Yeah, they just they, the students simply have a problem putting themselves in a position where they can think 
so radically differently about their politics. And there's there's deeper problems with that that, that we can get into later. If you want about the just the limitations on thinking beyond capitalism and specifically thinking like, well, what does Marx actually say about what a society beyond capitalism would look like? And it turns out, and I've, I've offered a ridiculous amount of extra credit to a student who can, you know, show me what it is like Marx's really systematic version of communism that he describes. It simply doesn't, it's not there. In, in Marx's writings, it, it you know, it's 99.9% a critique of capitalism and then some principles for kind of a democratic egalitarian post-capitalism. So let me just ask then maybe as a sort of a follow on to that, um, as someone myself, you know, I'm teaching on a, a satellite campus in a, a small southern Ohioan town, definitely, you know, reading the piece, I can feel that I have observed some of the values and attitudes that you're talking about um, in my own students, though obviously there's going to be some differences too, right? The, the the Cuban connection, that's definitely not going to be present. And also I would have the sense that your own students are going to be a bit more middle class maybe than my own. So with all that in mind then, you know, I just, I guess I want to ask the question about translatability. Uh, to what extent were you and Sean thinking um, that uh, some of these um, uh, methods would maybe be unique to what you've experienced in your classroom in Miami, and to what extent can the lessons of this article be translated to other uh, regions in the United States? Yeah, so our, our hope in, in writing this is that not necessarily that our, our pedagogical strategies can be just kind of pulled out and and implanted in any classroom in the country or, or around the world. Our hope was that different scholars in different places would read the article and think like, oh, I experienced something kind of like this and I can find some insights here that I can adapt for my classroom, the specifics of, of what, what I'm seeing in the classroom. Um, and based on the, the kind of the other professors and stuff that we've talked to who have come across the piece, it seems like there's, there is some uh, translatability. Because, um, you know, even if students in, in Southern Ohio might not have a strong kind of emotional or, or identity kind of based reaction to Marxism like our Cuban or Venezuelan students do, there's still a historical memory of the, the Cold War, you know, most of, most of our students, you know, weren't even alive at that point. I was barely alive. Um, but there's still that kind of historical political memory. I mean, we see how even the Republican Party now still finds red baiting uh, effective. Um, trying to make Obama, Bernie Sanders, you know, Hillary Clinton, they're all, you know, evil socialists. So I, I think there's still something to it. it, it it's definitely not, not to use your It's definitely, or I should say, it's probably not going to be as visceral on that first category, right? That historical um, legacy of communism in, in other places. But I think it's it's still possible given, given how rabidly anti-communist even, you know, K to 12 education is. It's like there's, there's very little 
positive um, treatments or, or even neutral treatments of, of the communists. Right. So maybe as a follow on to that question, then I, I have what might be a kind of a tricky question, actually, but it, it seems to me there are, and I'm speaking broadly here, of course, but the, there are at least two frames from which we can approach the question of the legacy of Marx today. On the on the one hand, there is this desire that we might share with, say, a, a Terry Eagleton or a Jacques Derrida that is trying to recover a lingering spirit of Marx that remains somehow true despite and in the face of the terrible things that have been done in his name. And this, I think, is is your position in the classroom, right? That's that's where you go with your students, you know, that this, the Soviet Union was uh, an ideological project that took liberties with, uh, with Marx's thinking about communism. But isn't there also perhaps a less popular but not entirely unreasonable position, especially right now, as we are celebrating the 100-year anniversary of the October Revolution in Russia, which seeks to recover as somehow necessary the Bolshevik legacy, right? The legacy of Castro, etc. Obviously, that's going to be a tricky proposition where you're at. But I'm thinking of the important arguments of people like Zizek or Jody Dean here. And you do open your piece stating your good faith assumption that some historical ideas are accurate and others are false. So I'm curious how you would respond to this essentially contested aspect of Marxist historiography today. Yeah, no. So, me, me personally, again, just just um, being open. I am probably more open in the classroom about my own personal politics in an effort to just kind of be on the level with my students. And you know, it's not necessarily the way that everyone has to do it. Um, I, my my co-author Sean, he does the exact opposite. He refuses to answer any questions about his personal politics. It's not the point he thinks that that is a better way to get students to take all of the ideas kind of equally seriously. And, you know, but as Marxists and socialists, there's this kind of belief or, you know, a well-found belief, I think, that when push comes to shove, if you can get students or any person to take socialist ideas seriously, these ideas are better. That's why, that's why we, we believe in them, right? So getting them to do that is effective. How you get them to do that is is the question that we are we are trying to deal with. Yeah. Um, so I think in terms of this question of the legacy of communism and Bolshevism and, and things like that, I tend to be in in the classroom more into that kind of Eagleton category, right? That that I think is is a thread that goes through Western Marxism as a whole, even the Frankfurt School. Um, was very keen on criticizing Soviet, quote-unquote, Marxism and Western capitalism in, in the same breath, right? This whole idea of, of state capitalism, that they're not even, that the Soviet Union, China, and North Korea, that they're not even socialist, right? They're just a kind of state version of, of capitalism where there's still a very class-stratified society. The workers have very little control, Um so I think the first that that first category offers 
a better pedagogical tool to get students to learn what Marx actually wrote because you can do a, a compare and contrast. Um, but on a more political level, I think, and then this is what uh, Zizek ha has thought about and written a lot about is capitalism is an extremely violent system. It's grotesque. And to imagine or, or to think that the transition to socialism or, or something broadly, you know, that's kind of a, an egalitarian, democratic, post-capitalism, whatever you want to call it, to think that that transition wouldn't be messy and violent is, is a little bit naive. Now, that's not to justify any kind of atrocities that were, you know, we have the evidence that they were, they were committed. I, th I think there's still very important lessons that can be learned. I mean, that that one being being the big one that it's not going to be a smooth transition if if there ever is such a transition to to a, a more just society like the one that Marx kind of prefigured. It's it's going to be violent. I, I have my own opinions on on the role of violence and, and things like that. That. Um, I think are really important to, to take account of. And, and I'm just not sure that, you know, in an undergraduate political theory class, there's just not the time to really get into the, the complexities of that, that I think just kind of inspiring students to be interested in these questions is, is as good as, as we can hope for in a, in a single class. So, okay, if the first major obstacle that you encountered in the classroom um, was bound up with your proximity to Cuba and the legacy of the Cuban Revolution, uh, the second concrete issue that you document in the piece is connected to the question of human nature. And it's this old idea, I suppose, that Marxism, yeah, well, it might be great on paper, but in the real world, it's going to require tremendous trust between flesh and blood human beings. And history shows us, if nothing else, that human beings have a terrible track record in actually um, proving themselves <laughs> deserving of this trust. So Sean, your co-author, who unfortunately couldn't join us today, um, has a really kind of humorous way of responding to this idea. And the point is, is, of course, not so much to come up with an argument or a way of proving that human beings are angels, but simply rather to make the argument that, look, from our own situated perspective within capitalism, we're never really going to have the opportunity to access what human nature really is. Um, that's a historical question. And we are, of course, human beings, an object of analysis ourselves conditioned by history. So to prove this point, to model this out for the students, Sean has this diagram where on the one hand he has this figure called Feral Baby and on the other he has this figure called the Pretentious Nerd Anthropologist. Feral Baby, he says, is raised in the wild uh, by squirrels and wild boars and fed berries and nuts. Um, and then the Pretentious Nerd Anthropologist comes into the picture and he wants something, right? Um, now you, or Sean rather, asks the students, well, what is it that this 
anthropologist is going to want from the study of feral babies. So just maybe talk us through this and uh, uh, explain, if you can, how, how Sean uses this exercise in the classroom. But he's making a very serious point that when any once goes, sets out to study human nature, not not only is there a whole, you know, the question of cultural diversity and different manifestations of human nature, but, and I, and I think he, there's, he gets this from the structural anthropology tradition as well, um, that the, the anthropologist in this example brings with them a whole set of assumptions, even conceptual categories that are historically and socially rooted in their own culture, right? So when that anthropologist is studying supposedly neutrally what, you know, feral baby or say some indigenous tribe or whatever the case is, or even, you know, studying working people in the United States now, right? There's cultural, social, historical baggage that gets kind of serves as a filter. So there's there's immediately just just from the idea of the project, right? That the the anthropologist has a particular social professional role and, and all of these different things just cannot be separated out. And this exercise, um, I definitely didn't do it justice, but the whole idea is to get students to really have the kind of the aha light bulb moment where they see that even in this constructed example that's kind of hyperbolic, there's a whole bunch of messiness that comes with this, the studying or the attempt to study human nature. So maybe now I'll just make a comment here because, you know, I think probably there's going to be some people listening to this that are thinking to themselves, wait a minute, um, you're not necessarily teaching political science here what you're actually engaging in is propaganda, okay? And this is where I think the question of pedagogy is actually important here because no one is actually proposing that uh, you're going to stand in front of the classroom and just, you know, start preaching the gospel of uh, some sort of doctrinaire interpretation of Marxism that leads inevitably to um, some kind of not even necessarily like even a socialism, let alone communism, right? But actually what we're using is Marx as a critic to engage in uh, a process of thinking about the historicity of human nature and the way in which a lack of historical account might um, condition us erroneously uh, to think about our own reality as something that's existed um, transhistorically, okay? That the rules of the game as they're configured now, the way we perceive the naturalness of the game that we're playing, um, that it has always been thus. Uh, so pedagogically here, you're, you're actually bringing something quite rich to the table. Um, the descriptions in the piece um, are all designed in order to kind of get the students to come to some of these conclusions on your, their own. And in the next episode uh, coming up, we are going to have 
Sebastian Slavsky and Kevin Funk talking about the state of Marxism, the dire state of Marxist teaching in the United States right now. You know, they document some of the, you know, really just bizarre um, caricatures of Marxism uh, that we see in contemporary textbooks and contemporary syllabi uh, that are used in in top 10 universities in the United States of America. Uh, what I think your piece really does is it sort of provides a really valuable corrective. Uh, it provides pedagogical tools and ways of modeling for students um, the arguments of Marxism. And so, you know, given this, the dire sort of dishonesty um, with which Marxism is approached and handled in higher education today. Uh, what I think your piece does is it actually brings us back to a Marx that's a historical critic and someone who can help us help our students become better critical thinkers. Right. No, it, it's good to see here that uh, um, that, the, that you found this this useful because I, I think just in a broad pedagogical sense, not even a in any kind of critical or Marxist sense, that one of the most important things that, that we can do as teachers, at least in my opinion, is to get students to kind of acknowledge whatever preconceptions or ideas that they have and, and make them confront them. You know, there's not a huge judgmental role for the teacher in this, but just facilitating that reflection for the students. And, and again, as I said earlier, our hope, of course, is that they realize these massive contradictions and gaps in their understanding of how, not just how this system came to be, but whose backs it currently uh, is built on and is reproduced, reproduced on. I mean, of course, um, we would be love for them to kind of go through these processes and come and be like, okay, I'm a Marxist now. Well, and then, you know, if, Fox News is listening. They'll love to hear this. Um, yes, of course, of course, that would that's that's the goal. But I I don't think the the best approach to that is try to like browbeat students into accepting these ideas. First of all, like when people sorry about that, um, when people feel like they're trying to have something sold to them, whether it's a product or, or an ideology, they become more defensive. Right. Um, so. If they aren't convinced, that's completely fine in the context of a classroom. You know, in, they're entrenched in a deeply persuasive and manipulative neoliberal capitalist society, right? That really has made their consideration of these alternative approaches to to understanding the world and being in the world um, very, very difficult. We just demand that students take Marx and Marxism on its own terms like we demand the same that they do for Locke or Burke, like I said. It's just that they tend to automatically, per, or, you know, kind of, obviously there's the ideological uh, dimension to it that, that is kind of frames our entire essay, that it's just easier for students to do that when it's about liberalism or conservatism than it is for Marxism. So I suppose just a real quick question here. Do, can you just quickly talk about where these exercises come, uh, these activities come in the sequence of your, say, teaching week? Are you lecturing first and then using exercises? Or are the exercises at the beginning of the class to sort of pr provoke thought that opens space 
for a lecture. Obviously, interesting thought experiments in the classroom can be, you know, tremendously powerful tools. But on the other hand, Marx is often a very dense thinker, dense writer. Um, a lot of this is going to have to be exposited for students, um, even in an introductory class. So, so how does that work for you? Um, this sort of uh, division of labor between the lecture and the classroom activity. Um, so it, it depends. Usually these exercises will come at the beginning of a class, something an open discussion. And then if there's questions that, you know, I always try to pitch questions back to the class to, to see if, you know, some of the other students can fill in with their own reading of the text. Um, but if there's, if there's a concept like, like surplus value or something like that, or, um, dialectical materialism, just, you know, you know, got to cover the Hegelian dialectic or something. I'm not going to just like, you know, the, the other, one of the other students in the class who, you know, got a five minute lecture on it in the one philosophy class they took. Um, so I, there is definitely a space for lecturing. Um, but it's usually on these much more complex topics that are, that are really just like, they just need to understand what surplus value is so they can then think critically about it. Um, so yeah, there, there is space for that. But for the stuff that we touch on um, in, in the essay, we're talking about like Marx's conception of human nature or something like that, that's much more fruitful to have a, have a discussion about as opposed to me just lecturing them about this conception of human nature. So uh, where do you guys go from here? Do you have anything more in this uh, territory um, in the pipe or uh, are you shifting your attention onto other uh, research concerns from here? I'm in the process actually under review. Uh, I have an edited collection. Um, it's it's under review at a few uh, left left presses that collects a bunch of different essays that that grapple with with these questions in different ways. The collection will include the Marx in Miami essay, um, in addition to to a couple of pieces that just kind of randomly people read the Marx in Miami essay and then kind of had their own thoughts about it. Um, as well as the um, dearth of class analysis in international political economy, an essay on kind of feminist Marxist socialist pedagogy, um, some a couple essays more on kind of critical theory in the Frankfurt School, um, looking to their work for for pedagogical insights. Um, so I'm looking forward to to that collection. Um, all the essays are are done. I have them all. Um, I'm co-editing that with uh, Mary Caputi at Cal State Long Beach. Well, Bryant, um, next up, I uh, you know I have to ask you about this uh, because uh, you've been in trouble lately, uh, raising some hell with your and I'm quoting here treacly prose. Um, You've got a piece in the current issue of class, race, and corporate power uh, that seems to have been picked up by a few uh, websites uh, in the far-right media space. Uh, they're upset with you uh, for your description of the Disney movie Beauty and the Beast, uh, which you claim is exemplary of toxic capitalist masculinity. So... Um, What's going on here? <laughs> How did you get your piece picked up by these blogs? Uh, what are they missing 
in your analysis of how neoliberal masculinity is portrayed in Beauty and the Beast. And uh, any uh, teachable moments from this uh, that you're uh, taking on board yourself for the rest of your career? <laughs> um, maybe a teachable moment for myself. I have no idea. Um, yeah, what what didn't they get wrong? Um, it, it was it was certainly quite the. No, I mean this is this is a a pretty uh, obscure academic journal, which you know academic journals kind of inherently even the top ones um, are obscure to the general public, um, and this kind of is is a relatively new journal, um, and so I have no idea how they initially got got a hold of it. Um, so it started off, I got an email from a reporter, if you want to call her that, from Campus Reform, which generally targets left-wing academics. And she asked me for an interview about this essay. I assume she just does like trolls the internet every week and just searches like academic buzz phrases like toxic masculinity. And just kind of came came across that because if you look at other stuff that she's written on, it's all similar kind of obscure academic stuff or, you know, statements that professors have made in classes um, on these like buzzwords, these buzz phrases. So, um, so I, I told her to um, fuck off. Um, I don't know if you want to edit out the swear words. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I, I basically told them told her to, to fuck off. I gave her a nice long quote about how terrible campus reform is. Um, and she was kind enough to put the quote in its entirety in her, <laughs> in her story. Um, I, I assume to rile up the kind of very far right audience that reads campus reform. And then about two days later, I had like a half dozen hate emails in my inbox and like voicemails on my cell phone of people like, you know, calling me to tell me how dumb I am and how one of the voicemails accused me of lacking toxic masculinity and this person perceived that as an insult. So what, they're just deducing from your voicemail message that you're not an alpha or something? Uh, what's going on there? I, I assume, yes. Apparently there's something about my voice. It says like, from the sound of your voice, you know, my, my voicemail message. Um, that I, I lacked toxic masculinity, which was, I was very happy to hear that actually. So I, I went online, online and I found out that the story, because of how incestuous the right-wing media is, they just read each other's things and then write new stories about them. And so the Daily Caller picked it up, Breitbart picked it up, um, and it ended up on last count over a dozen other right-wing blogs. And I stopped counting. It could be on, you know, all of them by now, all one million of them. It ended up leading to a producer at the Fox News show Waters World emailing me, asking me to come on their show. Now, this was pre-recorded and edited, and it was still a very, very difficult decision whether to, to do it or not, and decided in the end to tell them to fuck off as well. So wait, you're telling me you don't have a lifelong dream to go on a conservative uh, TV show and give them a piece of your mind? I mean, it's it's been a lifelong dream of mine to, to you know, to kind of make them look stupid. But and I don't know that, you know, you have to be perfect. They have paid researchers and, you know, they would they would have a whole staff dedicated to making me look stupid. 
and then they'd have the editing process to do it as well. But even if it were live, they, you know, they still have all of these resources and these practice techniques to twist your words. You know, the host can interrupt you and talk over you at any point. But yeah, I mean, I think I'll always have a little, a little bit of regret, but I think it, it's always going to be rooted in a kind of imagined success that I would have had that I don't think is, is very realistic. Uh, I'm a pretty, pretty good arguer. Um, and a lot of my, a lot of my friends on social media, uh, were like, yeah, go on and do it. But I think they just had, they had this kind of same idea that I would just rip this guy to shreds, not taking into account all of that other, other. Well, I hear you on that. I mean, I think there's a, a risk, um, we've seen, uh, recently, someone as competent and skilled a journalist and writer as Gary Young, you know, uh, going on an expedition to go tete-a-tete with uh, Richard Spencer and, um, you know, not coming away from it looking yeah. all that well. I've seen a lot of people debating this on Facebook in the last uh, week or so. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, 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 it there's a sort of a consensus emerging that, Richard Spencer handed his ass to him, which, you know, is not great. We need to be doing better than that when we confront these guys. At, at best, you broke even, right? Like, Richard Spencer looked exactly like Richard Spencer wants to look. And Gary Young comes off like someone who is completely disgusted by Richard Spencer, which is also entirely predictable and justified. Right? It's like they all, they both came out of the interaction exactly where they started, I think. Well, it was kind of interesting to watch uh, Spencer outmaneuver Young uh, by effectively borrowing his own language and, and using it back at him. You know, he was using this language of uh, safe spaces. America is going to be this safe space for white people. Um, and in this sense, our two experiences are linked together. You're never going to be accepted um, in the United Kingdom as a British man. So the, 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 the nice thing to do for you would be to facilitate uh, for you to go back to a geography uh, more in keeping with uh, your skin color um, and be among people who share that skin color, uh, thereby, thereby having um, a fair chance uh, to accumulate, as he calls it, uh, social prestige. Um, without being encumbered by racial, you know, expectations, racially charged bias. And ultimately, white people should be able to enjoy something similar. And that should be the function of the United States, to be a, an ethnostate for white people. Right. It's like the, and, and he draws on, interestingly enough, and I don't know if he gets to it in the Gary, Gary Young interview or like it's like a the same type of argument that black separatists made that we we will never be able to be equal in a society that's dominated by by you know kind of white anglo european peoples and so if we want to have our own a society where we're treated like human beings not as you know kind of second third fourth class citizens maybe even citizens that we need to have our own countries our own societies and it's kind of just flipped right and that's perhaps why uh, gary young gets stuck uh when spencer asks the question you know and and so you know can we not have a, a space like this for for white people too young's immediate response is well you know slavery 
and uh, racial segregation, you know, those weren't great things. And <laughs> Spencer kind of says, yeah, well, doesn't that prove my point? Of course, I think obviously that's going to be a hard question to answer uh, in some respects because the history of racism in the United States is about blacks and whites trying to live in adjacent spaces. What uh, Gary Young, of course, is instinctive reaction is maybe in fact the wrong reaction because the in fact the better way to respond to spencer is probably to to challenge him on the likely costs that his fantasy uh would have um for not just minorities but for political stability in the entire society that he's ultimately proposing to save and improve you are not going to get an, an ethno state without arguably a tremendous amount of violence. But uh, all that aside, I, I don't think these were the sorts of people that you were going to be up against uh, on the show that you were being invited onto, right? Yeah, and I think the particulars of my case were like the particular show that I was invited to, to be on. Obviously, it was like, it's, I mean, Jesse Waters is not a serious, I mean, he's increasing in his profile, but I mean, he, he, he started off as having a segment on, on the O'Reilly factor where he would go go around mainly to college campuses and interview students on you know quote unquote liberal campuses and just basically s select the stupidest people that he talked to or the most ignorant people who like didn't know who the vice president was didn't know who fought in the civil war and it's just like oh all of these liberals have all these great ideas but they're actually morons and that's like his shtick like it's all about showing how liberals and academics are actually just not it's this weird kind of contradiction i guess i don't know they're polar opposite that both liberals are both kind of detached and irrelevant and out of touch but also dangerous it does beg the question um about what kind of rhetoric and tone uh we should be adopting um in responding to this countercultural, postmodern, ironic tone that uh, that is being adopted uh, yeah. by the right, especially in online spaces. I mean, uh, I don't, I'm not super familiar with the uh, individual that you were going to be interviewed by, but uh, it seems that you know that that maybe um, just lining yourself up to, to, to be sort of um, taken on in this kind of highly mocking or condescending manners maybe not the best the best venue to um yeah and the alt-right is and angela nigo's book um Bill is just kind of perfect like showing how the alt-right was able to do kind of exactly what you're describing you know the whole idea of the conservative and and that all you know, the pepe meme the, the alt-right just kind of was able to do this while the left was asleep or fawning over obama basically um, and, and it's not, yeah, it, it's not a good place for us to be in, but I, I gotta say if, you know, MSNBC had asked me for the interview, not that they would have ever, you know, made a big deal about my essay to begin with, but I probably would have done it because those people, although their audience is certainly not nearly as far left as, you know, where, where I think we need people to be they're much closer, right? There's not that kind of entrenched obstinacy to any of these ideas just on face value. And kind of building off of that, like just the, the so Fox News did end up actually talking 
uh, do a segment on my essay sale. And it was so blatantly obvious that they didn't even read it. They had Britt McHenry on, and she, her response after Jesse Waters gave his little intro, which was actually accurate, they gave me a great pull quote that they showed on the screen, and it was, it was, I could have asked for a better one. It conveyed my argument pretty well. But the discussion that followed was completely detached from reality. She, she suggested that, you know, when she was a little girl, she loved carrying around a book. Like, you know, she really looked up to Belle and that I should go hang out with this other person who I guess had suggested that we should ban Dr. Seuss books from libraries. I'm like, where did they get this from? First of all, my essay treats Belle extremely, treats the whole movie positively. Like I think Beauty and the Beast, both versions should be required viewing for all children, especially boys, because it is, it shows toxic masculinity. And I, I use that to make a trying to draw the connections between toxic masculinity and capitalism. But it offers a critique, right? The person who is worst in that movie is Gaston. He's the pinnacle of toxic masculinity, and he's the antagonist, right? The movie gives you a pretty good judgment of him. But, you know, Jesse Waters ends the segment by saying that this this dear professor is just jealous of Gaston. It, it's, it's like personal and not connected to anything that I actually argued. So I think, yeah, I'm just not sure to, to kind of bring it back to what you were saying. I'm not sure. I, I was after seeing that, I was kind of felt a little bit better about my decision because I don't even I think I would have been totally taken aback if that's how they approached it in the interview, because, you know, you're they're going to give me like 20 seconds to respond. And I don't know that I could have rearticulated the whole argument of the essay that they didn't read in that time and make it make any sense. It was so outlandish that it's I don't even know I even now reflecting on it you know about a week later I'm still not sure how I would have engaged with them in a conversation if those were the terms they were saying that were just you know completely absurd well I think that's a fine note to wrap the interview up on uh Brian um I want to thank you very much for for coming on the show it's been a pleasure to have a a real live uh, expert in Marxist pedagogy uh, joining us. I want to wish you and uh, Sean uh, all the best uh, with your future work. And maybe uh, we'll be able to have you on again, maybe this time as a duo um, and, and talk a little bit more about some of these sorts of issues. Yeah, yeah no, I appreciate the, the opportunity. I, I don't know. I would consider myself uh, an expert in Marxist pedagogy, but as you kind of very nicely articulated, these are really important questions. The classroom is an kind of always already politicized space, whether it's about what you talk about or what you don't talk about. And so I think it's really, really important to to think about the strategies that we use to give our students a really an honest fighting chance to take heterodox ideas seriously. Even if they don't end up agreeing with them, they deserve the opportunity to be able to consider them on their own terms. So. So again, I appreciate the opportunity to be on. Oh, well, thanks again, Brian. And um, listeners, if uh, you are interested in these topics, stay tuned. The next episode is going to follow up on a lot of these issues. We're going to be talking with uh, Sebastian Sklovsky and Kevin Funk 
on their uh, recent piece um, in International Studies Perspectives entitled The Spectre That Haunts Political Science, The Neglected Misreading of Marx in International Relations and Comparative Politics. And I hope to have that posted for you in the next week or so. Thanks for listening, everyone, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.